Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Changing Reels. As co-host of Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway of Can't Stop the Movies. And I'm Courtney Small of Cinema Access. And Changing Reels is me and Courtney's attempt at introducing a new cinematic canon to the world, one that focuses on diversity in front of and behind the camera. The art for Changing Reels comes courtesy of Seth Gordon. He's a contributor at Can't Stop the Movies, and we'll include links on how to get in contact with him in our description below. At the start of each episode, we like to pick a short film, just something to talk about that's either tangentially related, directly related, or just something cool that we think is worth mentioning and focusing on. We'll start with my short here. And I'm a little surprised at the reception this has gotten, but I've been out of the loop with it for a long time. It's called Kiwi, and it was an animation that was created by Donnie Permetti, and it was his thesis film. So we've got kind of a running theme going on of picking student thesis films that really touch a nerve with folks. Kiwi is, at first, a harmless little cute thing, a little kiwi bird without wings, using its feet to hammer in trees to the side of a cliff, whereupon it gets its task done, puts on some flight goggles, and then jumps off the cliff to presumably its death so that it could attain its dream of flight, basically. I have kind of a long-ish history with Kiwi that I'll get to here in a moment, but Courtney, have, have you seen this before? Was this your first exposure to the heartbreak that that is Kiwi. Uh, this was, yeah, this was my first exposure to the film. I had not heard of it. I didn't even know there was like an online discussion surrounding this film. And I, it actually, even though it's a simplistic narrative, it took me about two or three times watching it before it really hit me that this was a tale of suicide. Because I was thinking to our feature film that we're going to be discussing later, and I was just thinking, well, this is a very interesting short. And at first I was like, oh, it's kind of cute. I wonder if this is supposed to be amusing. But then it got to the end. I'm like, wait, this doesn't something's not sitting well. And I really start to look at the details like, oh, wait a minute, this is really a sad tale about suicide. I guess the first time that I watched it, I missed the key teardrop in that one shot. At first I was like, all right, it's just a bird doing his thing, trying to fly. But it didn't hit me that, no, this is a much deeper film than I thought it was going to be. The simplicity of the animation really helps it a lot here. I mean, there's not that much texture detail on a lot of things, but the shapes, the, the gangly trees, and then the flat cliff, and then, of course, the round Kiwi, who you could probably make a pretty cute snowman out of if you're in a snow-based area, lets the emotion kind of hit hard. And it's one of those movies that I thought was my little secret movie or like my handshake movie that I could share with people. Turns out Sock Baby is that because that never really took off. But when I decided to select Kiwi for our film today, and I'm glad that you picked up on the sudden emotional reversal in Kiwi because we'll definitely have a lot of sudden emotional reversals when we get to our feature film After Hours. And Kiwi has become like a thing. And that is just, I understand why. I mean, it's a it's an evocative short it shows what animation can do in such a tiny window of time. Because in our first episode, when we were talking about evidence, I, I see where you're coming from, like how evidence could have used a little more fleshing out. Kiwi is more or less perfect as is. And I think it's that little bit of animated perfection, just with the simple shapes and the story, that I shouldn't be surprised that it caught on. It hits your imagination immediately, and now I can watch people watching Kiwi getting really sad. I don't want to compare it to the works of Pixar, because I think nowadays every animation gets compared to Pixar, but there is that ease to it, which is 
I almost feel like you could show this to younger audiences and they wouldn't necessarily pick up on the deeper themes. But at the same time, older audiences will watch it, enjoy it the same way, and then just kind of walk away emotionally gutted. Similar to my first experience, kind of going, wait a minute, what did I watch? Let me let me see that again, you know, and then be, oh, oh, man. I like the comparison between a potentially younger versus older viewpoint, because I think younger might think, oh, okay, the Kiwi's getting exactly what it wants. And, And me, older, looking at it now, it's more like, oh. Oh, the Kiwi couldn't live as it was, so it decided to create some fake surroundings to become something it wasn't because it wasn't happy with what it was. And then it kills itself. So I think that you're right, kind of avoiding that Pixar comparison. Honestly, I think Pixar could maybe, with its last few films, use a little bit of the trimming to get to the point that we kind of see with Kiwi here. But I'm glad that you enjoyed it. It's one that uh, I'm going to revisit again, and I'm actually interested to see what else this director has done. If they continued with the animation or if they've moved to live action, but very interesting storyteller. Yeah, I, I really like it. So Donnie Permetti, great job, great movie. And Courtney, what do you got for us today? My pick this week is High Rider, and it's a film by Bradley Tangonen. Apologies for mispronouncing the name. I was trying to find a film that fit the vibe of After Hours, and although I watched a lot of dark comedies, there wasn't anything that I came across that fit that kind of journey where strange things were occurring. And then I happened on High Rider, and it's a very simple tale about a unnamed woman who's basically at home smoking a joint, and she gets a text from her boss basically saying, if you miss work yet again, you're going to be fired. So the entire film is basically the audience watching this stoned individual ride her skateboard to work. And as she is going to work, you just see the strange people and creatures that she encounters. I really like how High Rider perfectly nailed that traveling to a responsibility while wasted and or obliterated out of your mind. I'm a good distance away from my college days, but getting up and having some kind of chemical influence on your head on a gorgeous day really let you stop to breathe in everything and while smell isn't exactly one of the focus points of high rider as she's traveling and she realizes the vegetation around her when she transitions from the urban landscape to the forest it lingers on those sensory details that kind of go by and almost take for granted. So I really like how High Rider slowed everything down, saw how both innocent and weird your neighborhood can be, and then how strange it is also that we have these urbanized areas and then suddenly you're in the middle of a wilderness, which I thought was well established with, I guess, the samurai or the, oh, actually it was a Warhammer figure because she's kind of geeky. I like that touch. But the Warhammer figure coming to life and pulling the arrow out of her. So it's definitely one of those ones that gets you on an emotional flip-flop while still just focusing on how, sensory speaking, she's taking everything in. And I liked how her journey progresses, because when the first people she meets are just kids playing on the front lawn, and then you see the guy with the karaoke, and it starts to get weirder and weirder as it goes. And I like when she's hitting the forest, the way how it's shot. It almost looks like the trees are forming an arch, as almost as she's going into, you know, Alice going into Wonderland, where she gets sees a tribal guy, the Warhammer figure. Through all of this, work is like the most mundane thing, right? Like she's she's almost in heaven as she's passing through all this, whereas work is mundane. And when you get to After Hours, it's almost like the reverse with the main character's journey in that film and how the work is almost like his sanctuary, right? So I, I thought that was a nice little comparison as well. Yeah, it's a 
a good counterpoint, and I think your point about work being mundane compared to the Haven of Outside is set up really nicely in the moment before she actually arrives at work, because you have that gorgeous shot of her going through what looks like kind of like a rain tarp, a bright blue rain tarp, and as she's going through the rain tarp, we get this straight-ahead shot of her as people start folding it over from one end to the next, and it looks like she's literally surfing a wave into work. You could almost use this as a public service announcement of why it is that going into work in an enhanced chemical state can be good. Because this is her last memory. She's going to go in and she's smiling. She has this beautiful image of herself surfing the waves after one of her Warhammer figures saved her from her arrow wound. And while the work is mundane, she really loved the trip there. So I think this is, as you said, a great counterpoint to what we see in After Hours. I didn't get a chance to see who shot the film, but the cinematography in this film is fantastic. That wave image with the tarp I thought was just phenomenal. Even the Warhammer effect stuff I thought looked great as well. I was just checking out his website and it seems that Tannonen, he's had a couple of other shorts and I think it looks like he's working on a feature, so I'm interested to see where his career goes, because I think he definitely has talent. Yeah, with Tannigan, I'm sorry, Tannonen here, I think that he would be probably the best choice if they ever decided to reboot like the Harold and Kumar series. Or they could do what they did with the Neighbors franchise now, flip it on its head and maybe just get a, a couple of lady stoners hanging and do his thing with them instead. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, those are our two shorts for the day. Kiwi, directed by Donnie Permetti, and then High Rider, written and directed by Bradley Tanganen. Coming up, we're going to have a real quick break, and then we're going to be discussing Martin Scorsese's After Hours. So see you all after the bump. Alright folks, for our feature film in today's episode, we've selected Martin Scorsese's After Hours, his bizarre 1985 kind of breath of relief movie that he made when the production on The Last Temptation of Christ met sudden roadblocks. After Hours, of course, directed by Scorsese, it's written by Joseph Minion and Scorsese, and it stars a lot of people that we don't see in many other Scorsese movies, if at all. Uh, we got Griffin Dunn as our protagonist, I won't say hero, but definitely our protagonist, Paul Hackett, and his, love I guess his amorous interest, Marcy Franklin, played by Rosanna Arquette. There's a bunch of small players within After Hours as well that have amusing little cameos, so we'll kind of mention them as we go along. But in terms of my interest with After Hours, Courtney, do you mind if I share a quick story? No, go ahead. All right, so it, this happened in 2007. I was dating this girl, and I was invited to her best friend's graduation party so I could make a good impression on her best friend and thus the girl I was dating, I decided I was going to make a raspberry cheesecake. So I drive out to Walmart so I could start getting the ingredients I needed, walked into the Walmart, and I remember rounding one of the corners, and I almost ran into one of the employees. He was just this tall, kind of rail-thin dude with a light beard going, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, and then he just growled at me. He just went literally... And so I walked off. I was like, okay, that was a weird bit of aggression. Going through one of the other aisles, I was trying to find more of the ingredients. And then I ended up by the chips. And as I was walking by the chips, there was this, I don't know if they were boyfriend, girlfriend, or if they had just a weird friendship, but there was another lanky dude 
and his slightly larger girlfriend or girl that is a friend or whatever. And they were giggling at the Doritos while they were groping themselves. They weren't groping each other. They were groping themselves. So I decided at this point it's probably a good idea to leave Walmart. So I have what few ingredients I was able to get. Go get in line. And in front of me, there was just this huge Hispanic dude just with muscles everywhere wearing sunglasses. And what was weird about this is that my trip to Walmart and so on had begun at 11 p.m. So he was literally wearing his sunglasses at night. So while I'm in line with this dude, just this whisper thin woman, completely pale, wearing a white dress, almost floats up to him. And she says, did you want me to get the milk? And he doesn't say anything. He just turns his head slowly, nods at her, and then turns his head back. So after I get done checking everything out, when I'm walking out of the store, Muscle Dude is standing there. His girl, again, floats up to him. And then this pitch black van comes in, opens up, smoke comes billowing out of it, and then they go into the van and drive off. I still need more ingredients, so I decide, okay, time to try another store. So there's a Kroger down the street. I figure, okay, we'll give that a shot. I get to the Kroger, and it's completely shut. It should be open, but the doors that I try and go in through, they're not opening at all. So I drive to the next set of doors, and I decide to keep driving, because as soon as I got to that set of doors with my car, there was just this one dude glaring at me as the automatic doors keep opening and shut close. Okay, this is not the place I'm going to get the rest of my groceries. So there was another 24-hour shop, a little more upscale, called Schnooks. So I drive to Schnooks. Remarkably, nothing of note happens inside Schnooks. I get my ingredients. The dude who checks me out is very kind, and I leave the store. But as I'm leaving the store and I'm driving home, this, uh, he must have been like 70 or 80 years old, guy driving this huge classic caddy, rounds a corner, and even though we're in our respective lanes, he's just flipping me off and laughing maniacally. So that is my journey of trying to get a cheesecake made. So when we talk about after hours, there's some aspects of it of it kind of being an unloved or kind of like lesser seen Scorsese movie, but it perfectly hits that note when you're having a night that no one else will seem to believe. Yes, I was going to ask you, were you in Soho at the time when when all this was occurring? <laughs> no, I, I was in a really boring place. I was in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. Wow, that's that's crazy. Yeah, I think this film definitely speaks to anyone who has had odd nights out, whether it be with an erratic cabbie or just the strange people that you encounter. Your story, pretty much Scorsese, could make that into a movie. Make it the After Hours sequel. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, I, I wish that... Well, actually... Now that I think about it, we almost have a title there, because I was doing it from 11 to, like, 3 in the morning, so it could literally be before dawn, and that wouldn't hit the before sunrise copyright issue. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Scorsese, what, made After Hours when he was 40, so I think now him looking back at that time and then telling your tale might work. We need to contact his agent. we got something going on here. Contact his agent and then see what we can do and uh, maybe get a co-writing script credit in there for you and roll in that fat Scorsese money. And actually, now that I make that joke, that's why I want to explain a bit about why we picked After Hours, because it's not 
as diverse a movie in front of or behind the camera, but like we said, it's a little unloved. Scorsese was kind of in this weird position where he was always an artist's artist, and then he started his huge movies with Goodfellas and Casino and so on. It seemed like we didn't actually start loving Scorsese until Jon Stewart hosted the Oscars and more or less told us to start loving Scorsese because he got his Oscar for The Departed the next year, which I like The Departed, but for my money, I prefer stuff like After Hours more. And I wonder if it was because of movies like After Hours that were so weird and aggressively so that it took someone saying, hey, give him an Oscar for something more conventional for his career to actually get that awards consideration. After Hours comes at, at a strange point in his life. I mean, I guess both professionally and personally, but because he already had done Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. And I think, especially after Raging Bull, which was, what, 1980? Yeah. There's a period where I think every film that he did, like King of Comedy, which I think is a great film, kind of gets lost in that void because it wasn't Raging Bull. After Hours wasn't Raging Bull. The Color of Money, which came after that, well, a lot of people didn't like the color of money, but you know, it, I think I think he had that period where he had Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and he had kind of created this name for himself. And then the '80s was a very interesting time when a lot of his films weren't necessarily connecting with people. It's only when Goodfellas hit back in, in like in the '90s that's when I guess the love and the Scorsese hype machine revved up again. And I think his films in the '80s, even though if they're not necessarily successful financially or in some cases, story-wise, they're still very interesting. Like, I agree with you. I like The Departed. I don't think it should have won Best Picture, but that's another episode entirely. But I I love what he did with After Hours. And what shocked me about After Hours, especially watching it again, is he made this when he was 40. This film feels like a film like a really young director would make if they were breaking into the industry. I think it was only shot in, in 40 days on a small-scale budget, but it plays like it hits those dark comedic beats. I was laughing all the way through this film and it had me laughing and cringing at moments when I know I shouldn't have been laughing. Like, you know, it talks, it touches on some really dark and serious subject matter, but it does it in a way that you almost feel guilty for enjoying yourself. But it's such a delightful film. See, I had the opposite reaction. I still feel the same about After Hours. It's an amazing movie, and it may be his best of the 80s, because I really like Raging Bull. But that period that you mentioned, after Raging Bull, up through Goodfellas, where he had The Last Temptation of Christ, and The King of Comedy, and so on, he was making movies that seemed to be trying to shed himself of the audience he made for his own movies. And I'm glad that we settled on After Hours, because that seems to be the ultimate culmination of that. Because I did not laugh through After Hours, like, at all. I was enraptured. I could not take my eyes off the screen, and I just kept typing up notes like, whoa. But the comedy is so on that edge of turning into violence all of the time. And I think the closest I came to really laughing was when we start getting an idea of the oppressive and, I guess, antagonistic nature of Paul's universe when he gets in the cab so that he can go see Marcy, and the cab driver just starts driving like it's an action scene from a Bourne movie. Inside the cab, the camera's mostly steady, and Paul is just being thrown everywhere. And I really like how when we get the exterior shots of the cab, 
cab. It's speed ramped in a way, so we get only a little bit of the car's actual movement because it's such a jittery fast forward that it gives us an idea, mentally speaking, okay, something is not right with this universe because if we're looking at the cab on the outside and it looks like it's chopping through like a bad tracking problem, then that should mentally already prepare us that something is off. And just the glare that the taxi driver gives Paul and doesn't say anything when Paul realizes that his 20th flew out the window. So I came close to laughing at that point because of the glare, but because Scorsese is just throwing all caution to the wind and filming the hell out of this movie, along with the cinematographer Michael Ballhaus, I guess, is one of the other continuing our pronunciation trend. But all of this is aggressive. If the camera's around Paul, it's usually circling him or zooming in or zooming out. If it ever stops, it's lingering on this potential for violence. It just puts me on edge and it just put me on edge so much it was hard for me to ever laugh. Really? So you didn't laugh at the part where all hell has just broken loose and he's got literally half of Soho chasing after him and he witnesses the murder of uh, during a, a domestic dispute. And he has a brilliant line where he just, you know, almost throws his hands up in the air and says, look, you know, I, I'm sure they'll they'll probably blame me for that, too. And I thought that was a great moment. There was a lot of choice lines that had me laughing. And then also some of it was the reaction as well. The idea of this $20 flying out the window, almost like his magic ticket in and out of Soho is that one $20 bill. And when he, the few times that we, we see him come close to a 20, it's usually on like what the paper mache figure that looks like it's a, a, a trapped individual. I don't know. I thought he was an interesting character also because at times Paul's a bit of a jerk. He starts off as that, oh, why is this happening to me? But then you realize he's a little lecherous at times. His whole journey starts because he wants to hook up with Marcy. But there's that moment when he's giving Kiki a massage and you can tell that he's trying to seduce her as well. When he meets the lady at the very end, the other artist, and they play that great note on the jukebox where the song's playing, is that all there is? Almost like, well, I've tried all night to score with a woman, and I guess this is the only thing I've got. So even with the city after me, I'm still going to see if I can give it one last go. Because he's such a, a mixture of, why is this happening to me, to, and also a bit of a sleazeball himself, it made the dark humor play up a lot more for me. It just did the opposite for me, and I still love it, don't get me wrong, because that scene that you talked about where he watches the couple across the alleyway in the other building, he was watching them have sex earlier, and that definitely plays into his lecherous nature that we get more than a few hints of. And the second closest I came to laughing was probably right after that, because it wasn't the line, I'll probably get blamed for that, but it was right afterwards when the, the camera has got this God's eye view down at him, and he just screams up to the camera that he's just a word processor, for Christ's sakes. That came close. That's another line that came close. With his lecherous nature and his aggression, that's, again, where it made me really uncomfortable. So uncomfortable that my response to release that tension wasn't to laugh, but was to just kind of coil in myself more. And coil in myself more is kind of an interesting phrase to use for this, considering the poster is his head getting twisted into a watch. It's because of the threat that Paul kind of embodies towards everyone around him. The moment where Paul and Marcy are first in Marcy's bedroom, and we again get an idea that this is not right. Something is wrong 
wrong with this setting because of just the blood red lighting. And that's the first time that Paul aggressively turns against Marcy because she has a couple of joints. They start smoking them. And then he just becomes angry that the roommate, Kiki, played by Linda Fiorentino, was making statues instead of paper mache bagel and cream cheese paperweights. And at that moment, when they're smoking together and he's sitting there, it gets so intense with the red and the close-up on Paul that it just seems like he's going to put the joint out on Marcy. And there's a theme throughout of women getting burned and Paul having this negative reaction to women getting burned because he was sent to a burn ward when he was a kid. It just sets up subconsciously that whatever Paul did... And I guess in his life, because After Hours definitely takes place in some kind of purgatory, if not hell, that these women, they're bearing his scars in some way. So it seemed like the only way he was able to <laughs> escape from all of the pain and the punishment was by finding a woman who would help him hide himself instead of help him score or anything like that. I definitely agree with that point, especially with the women in the film bearing his scars. I, I really like that note because how he interacts with each and every one of them, you almost feel like he's going through different stages of his life. Like when he meets Terry Gar's waitress, Julie, who they refer to as Miss Beehive, you feel like that might have been the maternal figure that he encountered in, in his youth. There's interesting fact that he's a word processor, but he encounters at least two artists throughout the course of the film. I can't remember if they specify what Marcy does, but every person that he encounters is slightly damaged in some way, but it's more of a reflection of him. When he's at his work and he's doing his word processing job, he seems very normal and you think that when he goes on this strange journey, everyone around him is the odd one, but you start to realize, well, the stuff that he's doing is odd and he's got a lot of scars. Like The fact that a woman that you were interested with dies and instead of sticking around for the ambulance to come or the cops to explain what's happening, happened you take off because hey you got to get your 20 bucks and you got to find a way home right like he's always trying to run away from situations that he's inadvertently or sometimes directly stirred up you made a great point there about how each of the characters seems to be a reflection of some aspect of Paul that brings sin or hurt into the world. Because one thing I noticed with all the characters is that they're all trying to pass responsibility off to someone else. Like, it's never Paul's fault that he can't get home. It's the bartender's fault because the bartender had the money that Paul needed, and so Paul gave him his keys. And it's the mob's fault for Paul not being able to get safe because... Paul didn't sit there and explain himself. Paul doesn't trust the artist Kiki, even though she is kind of a willing partner in pain and domination. That escalation, it fits very well even in the office at the beginning, because when Paul is helping the guy try and log into his system, the guy starts talking about how he doesn't intend on doing this the rest of his life. He wants to go into publishing, which, as you mentioned, since he meets so many artists and other damaged people, is again, Paul put his pain onto someone else and having them vocalize it. So what brings to an interesting question, I'm wondering if After Hours is just Paul's personal hell, or if this is like a collective purgatory for a lot of people, because so much is of Paul's negative side gets 
reflected on other people and then back to him, especially about the midpoint when Paul's frustration leads him into the bar and then the bartender just starts beating the cash machine and he can't unlock the cash machine even though he just beat the cash machine to the point where it fell open. Just great little dream logic or nightmare logic, I guess, in this case like that. But is After Hours Paul's nightmare or is this just collectively a nightmare? See, that's a good question. I think it's Paul's nightmare, but he's definitely impacting the world around him. There are a lot of odd individuals in this film. They almost seem heightened because of Paul's interpretation of them. There's that great moment when Marcy and Paul go for a late night snack, and the guy who owns the joint says, you don't have to pay after hours. The rules don't apply here. So Marcy blows the guy a thank you kiss in the air, and he grabs it, but Paul gets that jealous look in his eyes. And it's funny that you brought up part with John Hurt, whose character Tom is breaking the cash register, and up until that point, he's a very calm, cool, collected individual until he starts talking to Paul. It's like everyone's life gets altered when they encounter Paul. The, the women are either instantly attracted to him, which is kind of odd considering how disheveled he is for most of the film, or the men are agitated by him. You have the thieves played by Cheech and Chong, was it Pepe and Neil? Instantly they see him and they almost think of him as like the cops. This outsider who's come in and is going to throw them in jail for their crimes. The guys on the stairwell are suspicious of him and, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Like, everything seems to be happening because Paul is in Soho when he shouldn't. He's been let out of the pearly gates of his office and sent to hell purgatory just to see what it's like, only to realize that the heaven for him is sitting behind his word processor doing the, the mundane. Yeah, that plays into a common fear with uh, white folks, especially in the city, that the only thing in the city is filled with others out to get them. And the Cheech and Chong characters, Pepe and Neil, I love their impact in the movie because they seem to be independent actors from everything that's going on. I think it lends credence more that this is Paul's hell, but he is affecting people because they do get away from him. And anytime he misinterprets them. He thinks that they're stealing something from Kiki, even though Kiki said no. We have kind of a special relationship and they were basically kind of like role-playing, sexy burglary situation. But Pepe and Neil, they're the only characters, I think, where the camera actually follows them or at least it's one of the few moments where the camera detaches itself from Paul and actually follows them a bit. And they're just like, this is crazy, man. So they're kind of like mischievous imps almost, or just relatively decent people who, again, are just kind of misrecognized by Paul, who can't handle anything that's not normal. So he sees these two Hispanic people. Oh, of course they must be stealing. And then he talks to the kinky artist. No, they weren't stealing. And it's kind of a funny comeuppance that they're the ones who managed to get Paul up and out out of the basement and back to the office. They have that one great line where um, I think it was Neil who says, you see what happens when you pay for stuff? Somebody rips it off. The one time they try and go legit, this crazed white guy comes and rips off their statue, which they legitimately paid for. I think the point about Paul seeing the city as a cesspool of just crime and, I guess, sin plays quite well into what Scorsese, I think, was trying to achieve with this film. Because if I remember correctly, he made this film as he was getting tired 
tired of living in the city. Everyone views the city as a place of vibrant culture and of art. Like, you know, when you're young, you want to move to the city. That's where everything is happening. And for him, I guess at age 40, he was tired of it. He wanted more structure in his life. So bringing that whole outsider view of coming into the city, but not romanticize it, but making it hell is quite interesting, especially seeing it through Paul's eyes. And it's a good through line through his career, too, because in After Hours, the underneath of the city is bubbling through. It's just all this smoke pouring out, like some people would imagine hell to be. But it's at least contained. Like, it's not like in Taxi Driver, where the fog and the smoke is everywhere, kind of clouding Bickle's vision. With After Hours, there's a more proximate cause. And After Hours was also made after Scorsese had started getting clean from cocaine and alcohol and so on. So that confluence of things, you know, his general frustration with not being able to get The Last Temptation of Christ made because they pulled the plug from that, combined with what I'm sure was an anxious and troubling recovery period and a growing distaste of the city, that fits perfectly within his Milu, his visual signature touches, especially when we take Taxi Driver and his general frustration with his 80s project into mind. We've seen with other Scorsese films where he's brought back a lot of actors and given them prominent roles. His partnership with De Niro and now DiCaprio. I kind of wish that he worked more with Griffin Dunn and Rosanna Arquette and even Linda Fiorentino. I know Fiorentino has had a, a troubled career, especially in terms of, I guess, her rumors about her attitude on and offset. There was something about seeing those three on screen in this film where I hadn't seen them in a long time. And I realized how much I miss them, like how good they are in their given roles. It's like, oh, man, I wish they were in a lot more works. Yeah, and watching this, Griffin Dunn, I don't think he acts in any other Scorsese movies, but he fits the nightmare turn on an emotional pinpoint perfectly. And it reminds me a little bit of Oliver Stone's talk radio and Eric Bogosian, who wrote and starred in the stage play that formed the basis of talk radio. So, I mean, I kind of understand why Stone may not have worked with him again in a, in a leading role capacity. But they both have this way of tapping into the darker side of their director's mindsets. And when, when it's especially funny when I'm talking about talk radio in this capacity, considering that Oliver Stone would eventually go on to make Natural Born Killers. But I think that the sensationalist aspect and kind of what Eric Bogosian's character in that brings on himself because of the media is very reflective of Stone and the impact his movies has had. With After Hours and Griffin Dunn, Dunn, he, he just hits it so well that we get the guilt of Scorsese, which is obviously a huge thing with him giving his Catholicism, but just this frustration of trying to get what he wants made and being able to turn on those emotional pinpoints I, I'm not surprised that they didn't work together again in a leading role capacity because of how specifically nightmarish and energetic After Hours was of its time. But at the same time, maybe our screenplay about My Cheesecake Misadventure would inspire them to come back together? I don't know. but I, well, I Possibly. <laughs> maybe, like, maybe in a, uh, a supporting role, because I think he's very much tied to DiCaprio now, unless you're fine with DiCaprio playing you. I think that's fine. I have no issues with that. It'd be even funnier if he did that and he looked like he was rolling off the set of The Revenant and trying to react to this world. And of course they're going to be hostile to this bleeding bear man. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of disappointing that we didn't get something like this 
from Scorsese again because it really does hit the peak of his paranoia and just his creative frustration because of how much he just throws at the screen with After Hours. Uh, Honestly, I I can't think of anything else that comes after this except for one of our future entries, Bringing Out the Dead, that actually touches this level of insanity. I know we're definitely going to be talking about Bringing Out the Dead, so I, I didn't reference it much here, but I definitely got that vibe watching this film as well, just in terms of the city at night and how insane it could be. It's funny because after watching this, I was trying to think back to what were some of the other comedies that Scorsese has done, and I think the only thing I could think of was Wolf of Wall Street. And I mean, that's a dark comedy in its own way, but I kind of wish that he ventured into the comedic realm a bit more. I know his comedies have a dark edge to them. I still think they work. I think that's an interesting point of compare and contrast. I wasn't huge on The Wolf of Wall Street. It kind of felt like it was having its cake and eating it, too. I've actually felt a lot about that with some of the recent financial movies, um, like The Big Short and so on, that they both want to kind of criticize and indulge. I understand there's a point to be made one way or the other, but for me, like The Wolf of Wall Street is an example of where the comedy is a little too obvious and the criticism a little too obvious that it feels like it's indulging in what it's trying to criticize versus after hours where again it's just insanity start to finish there's it just feels at times that there's no one at the helm which also makes his cameo funny it almost looks like he's a nazi commander when uh, paul goes into that punk club and scorsese's up there shining yeah the light and trying to shine the, the spotlight on paul So that fits in pretty well, too, with our idea that After Hours is kind of like a personal exorcism for Scorsese, because Scorsese is literally trying to keep the focus off of him in that scene and trying to keep it back onto Paul. With that whole exorcism analogy, it reminds me to an earlier point that you were talking about where Paul was on his knees screaming to the heavens, basically, why me? The use of some of the aerial shots or the heavenly view where you've got that moment where he's pleading for his life and why are you forsaking me? And you think back to the earlier scene when he first gets to Kiki's place. I loved the simple shot of her throwing down the keys to him. And at the rate it's coming and at the angle that they shoot it, it almost looks like these keys are going to cut him in half. The last second he kind of steps away because every time he looks up to the heavens, if you will, something bad's happening to him. It's only until he gets back to the pearly gates that all is forgiven, if you will. Why pray if you're going to be tossed something that's going to hurt you? Exactly. And it also makes the end kind of a cynical one. I mean, I I guess it's comforting for Paul, but if you can't pray and get what you want in the streets, then go be a drone in the office and you'll be safe. Ugh, that just, as an an office drone myself, I do enjoy my job, but it kind of rubs me. Ugh. I'm sure your employers would have a a different view. (laughs) After after Hours is probably going to be the new uh, corporate video that they show. The new office space. That's right. You try and leave? Let's let's see what happens when you leave our company. No more comfort. Only Linda Forentino and Jujin Jong. Which, you know, doesn't sound that bad, but... That doesn't sound that bad at all. <laughs> Alright, I think that'll wrap me up for today on After Hours. Courtney, any final thoughts? It was great revisiting this film, because I hadn't seen it in ages, and in my mind, I was thinking back to it being a screwball comedy, and then I remember we were talking about this when you said it gets very dark. I was like, no, you're talking about a different film. And then I was like, no, you're right. It does. It gets very, very dark. But I still enjoyed it. I I think it's a great film. And I know he's done many wonderful films, but I wish this one got a little more love from people. All right. And that'll finish up our conversation today on Kiwi, High Rider, and Martin Scorsese's After Hours.
hours. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me, again, I'm Andrew Hathaway of Can't Stop the Movies. Uh, and you can reach me on Twitter at Can't Stop Drew or, of course, at the website itself, Can't Stop the Movies. Or here on Modern Superior, just leave a comment there. Courtney, any contact options you want to leave us with? Yes, you can definitely reach us at the Modern Superior website. Leave a comment there. And you can reach me personally uh, on Twitter at SmallMind. So for Changing Reels, this has been Andrew Hathaway. As Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.